Our Heavenly Father, creator and sustainer of all things and giver of all good gifts, your ways are higher than our ways, your thoughts are infinitely higher than our thoughts, and yet you have condescended, you have come down to reveal yourself to us, to speak that we might know you and understand what you have to say to us. And yet, Lord, we still need your help this morning, that we might understand your holy word. So, Open our minds and our thoughts. Give us insight and understanding that we might receive what you have to speak to us this morning. For this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles to our sermon text this morning, it's listed as Colossians 2, 11 through 14, one of our two texts, but we'll be reading verses 6 through 15, just for a little extra context this morning. So Colossians 2, we'll read verses 6 through 15, and we'll also be turning back to Genesis 17 at at one point in our sermon this morning. If you also want to open there. So Colossians 2, beginning in verse 6, here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. This morning we have the great joy of witnessing a baptism. And we'll use this as an opportunity to look at the scriptures to grow in our understanding of the meaning, the significance of baptism. What are you seeing when you witness a baptism? What is the Lord teaching you? What should you walk away with? How should you respond Because the sacrament of baptism points you to Christ in the gospel, there is always a greater depth here. You can always deepen in your understanding. Now, every time we have a baptism here at Church of the Covenant, whether I preach a full baptism sermon or not, I always read our baptism statement, which summarizes what the scriptures teach concerning baptism. This morning's sermon will basically seek to unpack the first paragraph in our baptism statement, which reads like this. Baptism is a sign and seal that those baptized are included into the visible church. By circumcision in the old and now by baptism in the new covenant, 
The person is separated from the world by being brought into the Abrahamic covenant. And through the gospel becomes an heir together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now the way we'll go about unpacking this statement is by first looking at the Abrahamic covenant and its sign and seal, which is circumcision. And then we'll look at how with the coming of Christ, he is circumcised for us and we are circumcised in him. And so the bloody sign of circumcision is done away with and replaced with a new sign, a new seal following Christ's crucifixion with water baptism. So our main text will be in Genesis. We'll start in Genesis 12, 15, and then 17 in particular. And then we'll look in the New Testament at Colossians 2 and a few others. The point of this all is to grow in your appreciation of how God has given us this sacrament to illustrate his grace in Christ and to seal and confirm his gospel promises so that you know that they are absolutely trustworthy. So let's begin by turning in your Bibles back to the Old Testament. And as you open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, I want, you, I want to remind you that as Reformed Christians, we believe that there is one gospel, one overarching covenant of grace, one people of God, one way of salvation in Christ. And it goes all the way back even before Abraham. When Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden, that's when God began to reveal his plan to redeem a people for himself in what we call the Proto-Evangelion. That is simply to say the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. That's when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this key verse foretells of the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And the rest of Genesis, you could even say the rest of the entire Old Testament is built around tracing family lines, looking for this coming seed, this coming deliverer. And all the rest of God's covenants and promises are built upon this first promise of God's grace. So as we trace the family lines forward, we come next to Genesis chapter 12, where we're introduced to Abram. And as far as we can tell, Abram was a worshiper of idols when the Lord called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And yet, the Lord appeared to him, and in pure grace, he gave him these promises, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Immediately we are told that Abram went, he obeyed, which means he believed the Lord. These promises are not yet God's covenant with Abram, but they are the foundational promises on which the covenant was built. The covenant itself comes three chapters later in Genesis 15 when the Lord comes to Abram again in a vision, promising him a, great, him a great reward. And Abram objects. He says, how can the prior promises be fulfilled while I remain childless? And then the Lord, in his grace, expands the promise. He says, look toward heaven 
Number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Genesis 15.5. Here the promise, it seems even grander, even more incredible. And yet what follows is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Genesis 15.6. And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is, the Lord perceived Abram's faith in himself. Abram trusted in the Lord's promises. And that faith was accounted in the Lord's sight as righteousness. This is the first Old Testament statement of what we call the doctrine of justification. By grace alone, through faith alone. And so we see here that at the heart of what is about to become the Abrahamic covenant stands this beautiful gospel truth. That God justifies the ungodly by faith alone. Now we know, looking back, that this is dependent on Genesis 3.15. The first gospel. The seed of the woman to come. That the righteousness that Abram receives by faith is actually the righteousness of Christ who was still to come. And so we have here the very beating heart of the gospel. The Lord follows this with a promise to grant the land of Canaan to Abram's offspring. And when Abram asks for further confirmation of all these promises, the Lord tells him to set up a covenant sealing ritual. In the ritual that follows, several animals are cut in half and laid out in a row to create a bloody pathway between two animal halves. The expectation is that both parties of the covenant, both Abram and the Lord, would pass through the two halves of the animals in order to act out what we call a self maledictory oath. In effect, saying, if I don't hold up my promises and my obligations of the covenant, may I be accursed. May I be severed into like these animals. However, when the time comes to pass through the pieces, the Lord causes a deep sleep to fall on Abram. He is unable to walk through the pieces. In other words, the Lord alone passes through the pieces. The Lord alone takes full responsibility for all that he has promised to do, and for Abram's responsibility. He takes upon himself Abram's responsibility to keep the covenant as well. If anyone is unfaithful, and we know the Lord will not be unfaithful, then the Lord alone will pay the penalty. This too is pointing forward to the day when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will be the one who is cut. He will be cut off from the land of the living, And the sword of God's judgment comes down upon him on the cross to pay the penalty for all the sins of all those who have the faith of Abraham. All those who, like Abraham, are justified by faith alone. So when the Lord makes this covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, it's already pointing forward to Christ and the cross. Now that's all leading up to Genesis 17. The covenant ceremony here in chapter 15. Then 13 years pass before the Lord appears to Abram again, bringing us now to chapter 17. And what we see here in this chapter, it's not a second or a new covenant between the Lord and Abram, but a reaffirmation of the covenant that was made in chapter 15. Here we see the same promises reaffirmed and even expanded as the Lord changes his name. 
From Abram, meaning exalted father, to Abraham, meaning now father of a multitude, a multitude of nations. Now, from the very beginning, all the way back in chapter 12, the Lord had spoken of Abraham and his offspring. But here now, there is a particular emphasis on the coming generations, as you see in chapter 17, verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. But the main thing that's new here in chapter 17 is the sign of the covenant, circumcision. Just as the Lord said that his covenant promises were for Abraham and his offspring, so also the covenant sign is applied to Abraham and his offspring. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a covenant between me and you. And he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. We also see in these verses that this is not merely a sign of physical descent from Abraham as it includes foreigners, it includes servants, anyone in Abraham's household. And by implication in future households in Israel, all are to receive the covenant sign, the sign of God's promises. The Lord also makes clear that this is not optional. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. From this, we get the clear idea that circumcision is a mark of inclusion into God's covenant people, his Old Testament church. To have this mark is a sign of inclusion into God's promises. To lack this mark, on the other hand, was to be cut off from the people of God. So then what exactly does it mean to say that circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant? You could say that a sign has two parts. It both illustrates something and it points you towards that thing. If you think of a road sign, it often simply uses words nowadays. But, of course, the best road signs, the best billboards will not only use words, but also pictures to capture your attention, to get you to pull off at the next exit. And to get you to go to the destination that they are pointing you towards. And even if it's just words, the The best words, the most descriptive words, create pictures in our heads. And so sign, a circumcision as a sign in the flesh, a surgery even, is that it is pointing to the truths and the promises of God's covenant, illustrating something about them. There is one ritual action in circumcision, but there are several layers to the symbolism, to the illustration. In this ritual, what happens the foreskin of the male reproductive organ is cut away. But let's consider all the layers of symbolism here. The first layer of symbolism here is that this is saying that man in his fallen state is sinful. And that sin needs to be cleared away for man to be reconciled to God. As scripture says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? Psalm 51.5 or Romans chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, for all have sinned and fall short 
of glory of God. But by cutting away that flesh, a second layer of symbolism is pointing to the fact that God will wash away that sin by faith in him. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now this is what the sign is pointing to. It's not to say that circumcision itself automatically saves the person. It does not. Rather, it is a sign of this promise from God, which each person must believe. Now, in Abraham's case, Paul writes, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised, Romans 4.11. In other words, he was circumcised after he believed and was justified. But for many of the believing saints in the Old Testament, they would be circumcised as infants on the eighth day, and then they would later put their faith in the Lord, fulfilling that which circumcision pointed them to. I can only say many, not all, or even almost all, because we know that circumcision wasn't practiced 100% of the time in Israel's history, and of course only the males were circumcised. But the point is the sign points you to the promise. It calls you to believe and to receive the Lord's righteousness by faith. Now, it's not enough to simply have your sins forgiven and then go on living in sin, what we would call to be justified and not sanctified. Back in verse 1 of chapter 17, the Lord said to Abraham, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And so a third layer of the symbolism here is that outward physical circumcision points to what Scripture calls the circumcision of the heart, a heart that is transformed to walk in God's ways. God calls his people to this in Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. He calls his people to obedience. But of course, heart change is ultimately something the Lord himself must work within his people. And he does promise to do this. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Now again, this change of heart, it's also something that not everyone who receives the external, the physical sign, will receive from the Lord. It's a gracious working of the Holy Spirit. We know that Abraham's son Ishmael is physically circumcised. We saw that when we read the whole of Genesis 17. But he is not chosen by God. He is not transformed by God. Rather, it is his other son Isaac who is chosen. And so Paul writes in Romans 2, 28 through 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so we see that this physical sign is pointing to the spiritual realities and the promises of God's covenant made with Abraham and his offspring. But one must embrace these realities by faith. There's one final layer to the symbolism of circumcision that I want to highlight here. In applying this mark of the covenant to Abraham, his household, and his offspring, a distinction is made between them and all the other peoples of the earth. They are set apart from the world and devoted to the Lord, marked as his holy people. Of all the peoples of the earth, they are blessed to receive his promises. And so to summarize, we have four layers of symbolism in the sign of circumcision. It symbolizes first man's sinful estate 
Second, how the Lord washes that sin away through faith in him. Third, how he grants the new circumcised heart. And fourth, sets his people apart as holy to himself. As we come to the New Testament and the sacrament of baptism, we'll see these same layers of symbolism again. So the Lord makes his covenant with Abraham and his offspring. He gives them the sign of covenant of the covenant, circumcision. And the sacrament, it continued to be practiced among God's covenant people until many, many generations later, the long-awaited seed of the woman came. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born of a, of a virgin. He was circumcised according to the customs of his people, but he underwent a greater circumcision on the cross when, though he himself was sinless, he bore the wrath of God for the sins of his people. He was that sinless substitute. He was cut off. His blood was shed so that all who put their faith in Christ would have their sins forgiven and receive the gift of his righteousness and eternal life. Now, just before he went to the cross, he said to his disciples that he was going to the cross and he would institute a new covenant in his blood. And after he rose from the dead, he commissioned his disciples, saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And this great commission, he's revealing two new realities about his new covenant church. In this, first he is opening wide his church to include people of all nations. Just as the Lord had said to Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is sending out his disciples not only to Jews, not only to descendants of Abraham, but to the Gentiles, to all nations as well. It's not clear that the disciples fully understand it. They don't initially go. Peter will need to be prompted with a vision in Acts chapter 10 before he will preach the gospel to Gentiles. But the point stands, the Lord commissions them to go. He sends them out. Now, second, the Lord makes clear here that the sacrament of admission to his church is no longer circumcision. It is now baptism. The new disciples from all nations are to be brought in, and then they are to be baptized. They are to be brought in with this sacrament of baptism. And as we read the rest of the New Testament, it becomes clear that this is the settled teaching of all the apostles. Circumcision is no longer required, but rather believers in Jesus Christ must be baptized into the new covenant, as he says here in the Great Commission. Now, this is not because Jesus Christ has in any way abolished the Abrahamic covenant, but rather because the new covenant is built on top of the Abrahamic covenant. And in Christ, there is a new way to receive circumcision. Now, that's what we see in Colossians chapter 2, if you would turn there now. Colossians chapter 2, reading verse 11. In him, that is Christ, in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
Now here Paul is saying that when you were baptized, this is a sign of your union with Christ, and in particular your union with him in his death on the cross and in his resurrection. Now that death in which Christ was cut off was in fact what circumcision was pointing to. The death which accomplished the washing away of sin and the righteousness of God which Abraham received by faith. And so in baptism, a person actually receives the very same things that Abraham and all his offspring received in circumcision. And so Paul here is calling baptism a circumcision made without hands. In other words, Paul is saying that baptism has now replaced circumcision. In baptism, you received circumcision made without hands. And that's why Paul can write in Philippians 3.3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so in the New Covenant, anyone who has faith in Christ has become a member of the Abrahamic covenant as well. To have Christ is to be in Abraham. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 3.7, Know then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And similarly, Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. It's not that Christ and the new covenant have done away with the Abrahamic covenant, but rather built on top of it. The reason for the change of the sign is that Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, it's once for all. It is the final sacrifice to take away sins and now. Since Christ has bled once and for all, no more blood is to be shed. And so from the cross forward, there is no more blood, no more bloody signs. Christ's sacrifice is final. And that means circumcision is replaced with baptism, a sign without blood. The Passover is replaced with the Lord's Supper. The blood is removed, taken away. And so as Christ sends out his disciples in the Great Commission, sending them out to make disciples of all nations. They have a new sign and seal of admission into the new covenant. No longer circumcision, but now baptism. Now we first see the disciples, now apostles, put this into practice at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. After the Lord pours out his Holy Spirit upon his church, Peter preaches the gospel and thousands of people, they are cut to the heart And they cry out, asking Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Acts 2, 38 and 39. And here in Peter's response, you see, first, the gospel laid out clearly. Repent and believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You also see the main points I just listed from the Great Commission. That they are to be baptized. That this is not just for the Jews that Peter is speaking to here, but for all who are far off. All the nations are welcomed in. And you also see that God's promises in the new covenant are just the same as before in the old covenant. They are for you and for your children. And the same is true of the new covenant sign of baptism. For you and for your children. So that's the pattern we see throughout the books of Acts as we work our way forward. 
Whenever the head of a household embraces Christ by faith, the covenant sign of baptism is implied to the entire household. We see this in the baptism of Lydia and her household in Acts 16.15. We see it later in that same chapter. The Philippian jailer, he believes, and his entire household is baptized in Acts 16.33. Of course, baptism, just like circumcision, it's not a guarantee of salvation. It's not some magic formula that saves you. Whether it's applied to a person who professes faith in Christ or to children of believing parents, salvation is by faith alone. But it is a sign that illustrates and points to the promises of God in the new covenant and the very same promises that circumcision pointed to. Now, the imagery, of course, is different, but the truths, the promises remain the same. Let's consider briefly here the imagery of baptism. It's a ritual washing with water. And so first of all, it points to the fact that we are sinners who need the filth of our sins to be washed away. But of course, secondly, it points to the good news that Christ promises to wash all our sins away for those who put their trust in him. Acts 22, 16. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. A third, baptism is a sign of the new heart of our sanctification in Christ. Paul writes about this in Romans 6, 3-4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so we are called to walk in this newness of life with the new heart that we've received in Christ to put off what is old, to put on what is new. And so we see how baptism shares the first three layers of symbolism with circumcision, which it replaces. A baptism here at this point, it's even richer. There's a new fourth layer here, where baptism is also a picture of how God pours out his spirit even more richly upon his people in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So there's one extra layer here in baptism. And the final layer is that baptism is also a mark of God's people, set apart from the world, devoted as holy to the Lord. And here it's the same as circumcision, but it's also richer For in baptism, the Lord places his own name upon his people as you are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I've said more than once that receiving the sign, whether circumcision in the old or baptism in the new covenant, does not automatically save a person. So the question becomes, why receive the sign? Well, one simple answer is obedience Because God commands it, this is for you and for your children. And even though circumcision has been replaced by baptism in the new covenant, the command to apply the covenant, the sign of the covenant to your children has never been revoked. But beyond that, beyond the fact that you're commanded to do it, this sign is a great blessing. Through receiving it, a person is transferred out of the world, welcomed into the covenant community of Christ's church. In this sacrament, God is saying to the one who receives it, I am your God. You are my people. My promises are for you. 
Of course, we know, mentally speaking, a newborn is too young, perhaps, to, re- to, re- to understand that message. But we believe that the Lord still works by his grace through placing the sign upon his people. And the child will then grow up seeing that message repeated over and over upon others. And will come to understand that soon after his birth, God already placed that mark upon him. God already confirmed his promises personally to him. God was already at work in his life. And so what a blessing it is to give the sign and seal of a covenant to our children. As you witness a baptism today, let it be a reminder of your own baptism And the fact that God has marked you as his own. He has said to you, I am your God and you are my people. Let this baptism direct your gaze to Christ and his promises in the new covenant. But let it also remind you of Abraham and circumcision and the promises he received in the covenant that the Lord made with him, which were pointing forward at that time to Christ who was to come. A sign of baptism this morning calls you to repent, to put your faith in Christ, that he might wash your sins away and grant you his own righteousness. There is no other way to be saved than through faith in Jesus Christ. And for you who are believing this morning, let this be a sign that you have been buried with Christ in his death, that you have been raised with him in his resurrection, that you might walk in newness of life. And so in in Christ, the old flesh has been cut away. The heart of stone has been removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. You are no longer a slave of sin. You must no longer walk in it. And so as you witness this baptism, let it be a sign to you that Christ has poured out his Holy Spirit upon you. He is at work within you to purify you from within. So let us Keep in step with the Spirit. Let us be holy as God our Father is holy. As you witness this beautiful sign and seal of the covenant of grace, let it point you to Christ your Savior, to all that he has done for you, and all that he continues to work in you and among us as God's covenant people this morning. Shall we pray? Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your covenant promises from the time of Abraham thousands of years ago through the coming of Christ and even down to us this day that you have always been faithful. We thank you for this sign which illustrates and demonstrates to us and applies to us these promises and assures us that you will keep your promises. And because we know that you are true and you are trustworthy, we can put our faith in you. Lord, we do pray that as we behold it this morning, you would strengthen our faith, that you would even call uh, people this morning to faith in yourself, and that you would strengthen us to walk in holiness even as you are holy. For these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.